pray together. Lord, many of us in this room and listening online can sing from the heart how good you have always been to me. And so we stop and thank you for your great mercy to us. Lord, in forgiving our sins, in giving us rest for our souls, in meeting every need, you are our all in all. And Lord, in Sunday school, you reminded us how much we need your power, that our own wisdom and strength is inadequate. Lord, only you can raise the spiritually dead this morning or at the park or in a conversation with somebody we know. Only you can convict of wrong attitudes. Only you can change hearts. And so we just acknowledge our complete dependence on your grace to work in us this morning. Lord, would you open our eyes to see the truth of your word and work it in our hearts, Lord, that we would respond in whatever way you call us to respond. We pray again for anyone who doesn't know you, Lord, nothing less than your overcoming mercy can raise the spiritually dead. And so we pray that you would be pleased to do that miracle for the glory of your name. In your name we pray, amen. Last Sunday, we started a psalm that describes how a believer struggled with some doubts about the goodness of God. Those doubts were stirred up by observing the unfairness of life. When Asaph compares his life with other people, he is upset about two things. First, The wicked, those who don't care about God or follow his ways, they're the ones who are enjoying the good life. They're always at ease. They're not troubled like other people. They're always prospering and increasing in wealth. And Asaph is troubled by that. And he's also upset because he says, I am not enjoying the good life. My life is really Hard. I'm stricken all day long. Stricken means afflicted by misfortune or sorrow. And every morning, he says, I wake up, I am chastened, which means corrected by punishment or suffering. So we don't know the exact details of what Asaph is going through, but obviously he's going through some tough times, and he's feeling very discouraged. And as Asaph tries to process God's dealings, he is envious of the wicked. He thinks they are better off than he is. And he is so discontent with the life that he has that he starts to question the value of being faithful to God. He comes to the conclusion in verse 13, Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and washed my hands in innocence. In other words, 
trying to follow God's ways has been a waste of time. It's just not worth it. Well, how serious were these doubts about God's goodness? He tells us in verse 2, As for me, my feet came close to stumbling. My steps had almost slipped. I was almost a casualty. I almost lost my way. I almost gave up my faith. Randy Alcorn wrote a book titled, If God is Good, Faith in the Midst of Suffering and Evil. I highly recommend it. He devotes a whole chapter to interacting with a man named Bart Ehrman and the book he wrote called God's Problem, namely God's Problem of Suffering in this world. So here's how Ehrman starts off his book. For most of my life, I was a devout and committed Christian. Early in my high school days, I started attending a Youth for Christ club and had a born-again experience. I became very serious about my faith and chose to go off to Moody Bible Institute, where I began training for ministry. I finished my college work at Wheaton I had solid Christian credentials and knew about the Christian faith from inside out. I served as the youth pastor of an evangelical covenant church. But then, I started to lose my faith. I now have lost it altogether. I no longer go to church. I no longer believe. I no longer consider myself a Christian. And this book is to explain... Why? So how did Bart Ehrman go from a self-described committed Christian to now what he calls himself a non-theist? In other words, he doesn't even believe in God anymore. The demons believe in God and tremble. Here's his explanation. I could no longer explain how there can be a good and all-powerful God actively involved with this world, given the state of things. For many people who inhabit this planet, life is a cesspool of misery and suffering. I came to a point where I simply could not believe that there is a good and kindly disposed ruler who is in charge of it. And so Asaph is saying, that was almost me. My feet came close to stumbling. I almost lost it. So how does Asaph go from wrestling with serious doubts that threaten to undermine his faith in the goodness of God to concluding in verse 1, surely God is good to Israel. God is good to his people. How did he get there? So we started last week with verse 16 and 17 where he says, when I pondered to understand this, when I tried to figure out how does the goodness of God's fit together with the unfairness of life, I was, it was troublesome in my sight until I came into the sanctuary of God. So as Asaph entered God's presence in worship, as he heard God's word and sang, God's praises with God's people. The light is starting to break through. 
Do you remember the quote from Ray Clements? Worship puts God at the center of our vision, and it is only when God is at the center of our vision that we see things as they really are. As Asaph focuses on God in worship, he regains a proper perspective on everything else. And one thing he sees more clearly is a glimpse of eternity. He says, then, in the sanctuary of God, I perceived their end. He saw their eternal destiny. Instead of looking at life from a short-term temporary view, he begins to see things with a long-term eternal point of view. And in verse 18 through 20, he talks about their sudden destruction. And then verse 27, he'll say again, For behold, those who are far from you will perish You have destroyed all those who are unfaithful to you. So first, Asaph was reminded to see things in light of eternity. He was also reminded of the goodness of God in his own life. Before he was caught up with, look what they have. It's not fair, they have fill in the blank. But now he's starting to think in terms of, look what I have. Before, he was using the world's definition of the good life. But now he's redefined the good life to be God is my ultimate good. First, Asaph looks back at God's goodness to him in the past. Look at verse 21 and 22. When my heart was embittered and I was pierced within, then I was senseless and ignorant. I was like a beast before you. Asaph says, my heart was embittered. If you look it up in the dictionary, it means angry or resentful at having been treated unfairly. We've all tasted that. We know what it's like to be treated unfairly. And Asaph said, I was so mad about this. My heart was full of bitter resentment. And I was pierced within. It's literally pierced in my kidneys. Matthew Henry compares it to the acute pain of kidney stones. Maybe you have had that or know someone who has. It's nasty. And Asa says, that's how I felt. And not only that, I was like a beast before you. I wasn't even thinking straight anymore. I wasn't thinking like a rational human being. I was more like an unreasonable, wild animal. It was almost like I had a case of temporary insanity. But then look at the next word. Verse 23. Nevertheless. Isn't that beautiful? In spite of the fact I was in such a bad place, In spite of all my confusion and doubts and bitterness, I am continually with you. You are always with me. Alan Ross says there is no interruption in his relationship with the Lord. Even in his darkest moments, he is continually with the Lord. Isn't that good news? We all have dark moments. And even then, nevertheless, 
God's with us and we're with him. Nasaph keeps going. Not only were you with me in my time of weakness and in my time of doubts, you took hold of my right hand. Remember, he said, my feet were close to stumbling, my steps nearly slipped, but like a strong father grabbing his child by the hand, you took hold of me and kept me from falling. You held me up. Psalm ninety four eighteen. When I thought my foot slips, your steadfast love, O Lord, held me up. Or Psalm 37, verse 23 and 24. The steps of a man are established by the Lord and he delights in his way. When he falls, he will not be hurled headlong. Why not? Because the Lord is the one who holds his hand. So why didn't... Oh, excuse me. Let me read an illustration of that, and then we'll ask a question. So just this week, if you read Desiring God webpage, there was a post by Tim Challies, and he shares his testimony. I didn't know that this happened until this week. In the last weeks of 2020, so about 18 months ago, my family faced our darkest hour. For it was then that the heart of my 20-year-old son, Nick, suddenly and unexpectedly stopped. One moment he was leading some fellow students in a game, and the next he was in heaven. His departure shocked us, devastated us, and left us wondering why. Why would God choose this for us? And why would God choose us for this? By God's grace, I profess from the valley of the shadow of death that my shepherd is good. I can attest from a place of deep sorrow that God is providing sweet comfort. I can proclaim that while my heart is broken, my faith is intact. And from the first moment of that first night of our sorrow, he has been present and kind, faithful and good. He has been true to his every promise. So why didn't Asaph, why didn't Tim Challies, why don't you or me make shipwreck of our faith in response to suffering in life? And the answer is in verse 23. You have taken hold of my right hand. It's not because we're so strong. It's that God holds us. We sing the song, When I fear my faith may fail, and left to my own it will, Christ will hold me fast, including during the deepest suffering. So Asaph starts off remembering God's goodness to him in the past. He also has a new appreciation for God's goodness in the present Back in Psalm 73, second part of verse 25 says, Besides you, I desire nothing on earth. Before, Asaph was desiring a lot of things on earth. He desired to enjoy the prosperity and easy life that other people enjoyed. Maybe you do too. 
He was very interested in having what this world has to offer. But now he is realizing that having God is better than all of those things. To paraphrase from Edward Griffin in the 1800s, there is more in God to be desired and rejoiced in than in all created beings or things. He is all I need and all I desire. Verse 28, but as for me, the nearness of God is my good. I've made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your works. In other words, knowing and enjoying God's presence, being and staying close to him, drawing near to God and having him draw near to me is my greatest good. Now have Asaph's circumstances changed? And I can't see anything in the psalm itself that tells us that he's not still stricken all day long. So he doesn't say, as for me, being done with all this suffering and affliction is my good. There's nothing wrong with that. That's legitimate. We can ask God for that. But don't you sense that Asaph would say, you know, whether my circumstances change or not, or whether my problems get fixed or not, or whether my body gets healed or not, experiencing the nearness of God is still my highest good. Because God can be near me in all those things. Asaph also looks forward to God's goodness in the future. Verse 24 With your counsel, you will guide me. So it's hard to tell if that's a present or a future. Um, There's a fancy grammatical term. It's a present, um, what's it called? Imperfect. So it's like it's happening now and later. So some versions go with future tense, some go with present. But it's, it's like he's guiding me now and he will continue to guide me is the sense of an imperfect And so he says, I'm confident that God will guide me through this journey in life, including all the ups and downs that I experience in this life. He trusts that Psalm 32, verse 8, is true. God says, I will instruct you and teach you in the way in which you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. And so Asaph just counting on God to keep guiding him step by step in his life. And just this week I was encouraged by the words of the hymn, Be still, my soul, thy God doth undertake to guide the future as he has the past. So many of us can look back at a track record of God's faithfulness, see him guiding us, seeing him opening doors and closing doors and getting us where he's gotten us. And that faith in seeing God in His the past strengthens our faith that he'll continue to do that for us in the future. He's never let us down before. He won't in the time to come. And then the rest of verse 24 says, and afterward, after this short, hard, often unfair life is over, you will receive me to glory. Instead of the eternal destiny of the wicked who perish forever. My future destiny is to be with you in your presence where it is fullness of joy, where I will see and enjoy your glory forever and ever. 
A thousand years later, Paul will say it like this. I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared to the glory that will be revealed to us. So whatever Asaph's suffering or Paul's suffering or you or I are suffering, is it worth talking about in the same breath with the glory of God that we will see and enjoy and be transformed by forever and ever and ever? So Asaph's getting his perspective back. Remember we shared last week, 2 Corinthians 4.16, we don't look at the things that are seen, but the things that are not seen. For the things that are seen are temporary, but the things that are not seen are eternal. That's what we're going to fix our eyes on. And then verse 25, back in Psalm 73. So he says, I'm going to be received to glory. And what's going to be the best thing about being in glory? Verse 25 says, Whom have I in heaven but you? So what do you look forward to about heaven? Is the main joy, I escaped hell. There's a lot of joy in that. You can be thankful to God forever that we don't end up in the hell that we deserve to end up in. Or maybe you're looking forward to a release from the pain and suffering and sorrow of this world. And that's legitimate. Maybe you're looking forward to seeing loved ones who have gone before. But Asa says, you know what? The main thing I'm looking forward to in heaven is being with God forever. The ultimate joy of heaven is God. Verse 26. My flesh and my heart may fail. But God is the strength, literally the rock of my heart and my portion forever. A portion is an individual's part or share of something. So in contrast to the men of this world whose portion is in this life, that's what Psalm 17 says, the men of this world only have a portion in this life. Asaph says, God is my all-sufficient portion now and forever. So here's Thomas Brooks in the 1600s. If God is your portion, there is no condition that can make you miserable. If God is not your portion, there is no condition that can make you happy. No man can be happy in this world or blessed in another world until God is his portion. It is not absolutely necessary that you should have this or that earthly portion. I'll just push pause. A lot of us think, I would be happy if I had God plus this. And you fill in the blank, however you fill that in. And Thomas Brooks saying, it's not absolutely necessary to have this or that, that you just filled in on the blank. But it is absolutely necessary that you should have God for your portion. So as we close, do you have God as your portion for this brief little life as well as for the life to come that lasts forever? Do you know, like Asaph, that your eternal destiny is to be with God and enjoy Him forever in heaven? Or will you be like one of those who perish forever in hell? Those are the only two possibilities. 
Heaven is not the default destination of human beings. Listen carefully to what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 7. I invite you to turn there. Matthew chapter 7. Verse 13 and 14. Jesus says, Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction, and there are many who enter through it. For the gate is small and the way is narrow. That leads to life. And there are few who find it. So if God is convicting you that you're on the way that leads to destruction instead of the way that leads to life, you know, Proverbs says there's a way that seems right to a man, but the end of that way is death, destruction. If God is getting your attention, confess, I've been going the wrong way. I've been going away from God, and I've been going in my own way. Isaiah 53, 6 says, everyone has turned, sorry, all of us like sheep have gone astray. Astray means off the right path. We're on the wrong path. All of us. Each of us has turned to his own way. So instead of being in God's way, We've decided to go our own way, which is the opposite way. So I'm going the wrong way. I need to turn from going the wrong way back to going the right way toward God. That's called repentance. And acknowledge I can't make things right by anything I can do. I can't reverse the consequences of the evil things that I've thought and said and done by trying to do some good things like going to church or giving money to charitable causes. I'm spiritually bankrupt. I have nothing to offer God that would make up for my sin. Titus 3, 5 says he saved us or rescued us, not because of works done by us in righteousness. This is not about a self-help, self-improvement project. We're helpless. Our only hope, the only way, is to trust Jesus Christ alone to rescue us from sin and bring us to God. His death on the cross is the only remedy for our sin problem and how it separates us from God. His shed blood is the only way the guilt and punishment of our sins that we deserve can be taken away. And his resurrection from the dead shows that he has done everything necessary to save us. Romans 6.23 says, The wages of sin is death, separation from God. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And we receive that free gift by faith in Christ. The Bible says, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Well, 3,000 years later, life is still unfair, isn't it? You can see that in the news you can see it in your own life. We might be tempted to envy the life of other people, the blessings, things they have that we don't, or and or be just discontent with the life that we have. 
And besides reminding us to develop an eternal perspective and to remember how God good is to us, Psalm 73 also challenges us to a deeper relationship with God. And here's why I say that. We all know God is necessary for our happiness. I think anybody in the room would say, no, you don't need God to be happy. The question is, is God enough to be happy? And so we probably need to ask God for more of his grace that we would come to know and enjoy him more and more as our portion. And to be able to say with Matthew Henry, all is well if God be mine. Let's pray. Well, Lord, you are good and do good. Give good gifts. You're a good perfect father and as your children we have sometimes had our doubts and Lord I just pray that you would use this psalm to correct our thinking correct our heart attitudes that we would grow closer to you and taste and see how good you are and be satisfied and content and thankful that we have you. And any other things you add to that, that's just gravy. But Lord, I pray that we would just seek and find you as our ultimate joy and portion. Pray for anyone who's here who's never come to know you personally, believes you exist, but has no personal relationship with you, no personal experience of your goodness and mercy, pray that they would be drawn to the Savior, who alone is the way we come to know you. It's in his name we pray. Amen. We're going to stand and sing the goodness of Jesus as we close.